Well, if you have Bibles with you, uh, I'd invite you to open up with me to uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 28. All right, if, uh, if you uh, don't know where Hebrews is, uh, it's on page 1006 in your Pew Bible. It's right uh, towards the uh, latter part of the New Testament. Uh, so turn with me there, Hebrews 9, 15 through 28. If you're not the Lord, I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version as we go. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses for all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, most everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Or was it offering himself repeatedly as a high priest enters the holy places year after year with blood not his own? For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. But one of the most uh, precious doctrines, and when I say doctrines, we're referring to theological teachings that the church has confesses, a theological teaching that we as Harvest Community profess, that, that Christians have professed for 2,000 years, is a doctrine known as the penal substitutionary view of the atonement. Now, if you've never heard of that term before, it might sound like a mouthful to you, and maybe as if it's something that lies on the periphery of important Christian doctrine. But in fact, the, the so-called penal substitutionary view of the atonement is no fringe doctrine of Christianity. In fact, it's a doctrine that lies at the heart of the gospel. And so that begs the question, what are we saying when we affirm happily the penal substitutionary view of the atonement? Well, to affirm this doctrine, just to break down the phraseology of it, is to say something very specific about the nature of Christ's death. In particular, it's the claim that when Christ died on the cross 2,000 years ago, he first of all voluntarily died in our place, hence the word substitution, to two, pay the penalty for our sin by satisfying God's righteous requirements against sinners, hence penal, 
so that God's sinful people, you and I, could have peace and fellowship with God, hence atonement. Now understand that this doctrine is predicated on a few assumptions. It's predicated on the assumption that we as sinners who have rebelled against the holy God of the universe deserve nothing less than the eternal wrath of God. But when Christ entered into human history, he willingly took our place, he died in our place, so that the punishment we rightly deserved for our sin was instead poured out to Jesus for all those who trusted him for salvation. And this is an indispensable, it's a thoroughly biblical doctrine that we happily confess with every other Bible-believing church. And yet, in some quarters over the last few decades, this doctrine, penal substitutionary atonement, has sadly come under duress, not because it's not a biblical doctrine, again, it's, it's, a thorough, it's a thoroughly biblical doctrine, but because it sounds far too harsh for many in our sanitized Western context. One theologian uh, about 20 years ago or so, um, who, who sadly rejects uh, this doctrine, has characterized penal substitution as a teaching rooted in violence that imagines the cross as a form of cosmic child abuse, with the father pouring out his wrath on the son. Now, there are a legion of problems with that kind of characterization, but the fact of the matter is that this very biblical doctrine that we know as penal substitutionary atonement assumes both a, a certain view of God, God's character, and a certain view of human sin and humanity, which is simply unpalatable to many people in our Western context. You see, when we turn to the Bible, whether we're talking about the Old Testament or the New Testament, one thing we find all over the place is that the shedding of blood is really important and it's really pervasive. You know, we could turn to Leviticus, for example, and read all about the various animals that had to be slaughtered. Why don't I just go to the pulpit mic? There we go. We could turn to Leviticus and read all about all of the various sacrifices that had to be offered, all the animals that had to be slaughtered, and all the blood that had to be poured out at the altar. Or on the other side of the Bible, we could turn to Revelation and read about how after the great grape harvest of the earth, a veritable sea of blood as high as a horse's bridle that comprised an area of 184 square miles filled the earth. Now these ideas of sacrifice and the shedding of blood, the pinnacle of which is Christ's penal substitutionary death on the cross, are frankly difficult for many in our modern world to accept, even professing Christians. And yet, even if you rightly profess the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement as biblical and necessary, which it most certainly is, perhaps all of this imagery of blood and sacrifice in the Bible raises the question for you, why? Why was it necessary for blood to be spilled in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament? And ultimately, why was it necessary for Christ to die? After all, God is God, and if he wanted to forgive sin, why couldn't he just snap his fingers and forgive our sin? Why does God's wrath need to be satisfied, and why does all of this blood have to be shed? Well, fortunately, our passage this morning addresses many of these questions, and for all of the weedy details that we have to work through, its main point couldn't be simpler, and that is Christ Jesus had to die. And that's our big idea this morning. Christ had to die. 
And as we work through our passage, we're going to home in on three specific reasons for why Christ had to die. Now again, we we might uh, imagine if we were to answer this question in a vacuum, why did Christ have to die? A number of reasons we could give, but just sticking to the text, what we find are three specific reasons given to us in Hebrews by the author in this text for why Christ had to die. First, we learn that Christ had to die so that we could receive. Second, we read that Christ had to die in order to represent us in heaven. And third, Christ had to die so that he could return. So first, Christ had to die so that we could receive. Notice when our passage opens, our author reminds us of something that we've heard a number of times already in Hebrews. He says right out of the gate that Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. Now to review, uh, because this is an important concept, a mediator is someone who stands between two parties. And in this case, Jesus Christ, the, the eternal Son of God, stands between God and mankind in order to represent us, the people of God, before God, so that we could draw boldly near to God, near to the throne of grace, unencumbered by the defilement of our sin. And this is exactly the privilege that we have in the new covenant. Through Christ, we are invited as the people of God to draw near to God. We have the promise that when we lift up our prayers to the Lord in the name of Jesus Christ, that he hears our many prayers, and that we sojourn this world with security and belonging in an otherwise insecure and lonely world because Christ Jesus in the new covenant claims you and me and the church as his own. But for all of these great blessings that we enjoy in the so-called new covenant, we learn that before any of that belonged to us, before any of that was ours, that Christ Jesus had, he had to spill his blood. And the first thing we learn in our passage is that Christ had to spill his blood specifically for us to receive forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness of sins that all of us so desperately need. In order to give us the forgiveness promised in the new covenant, it was required that the mediator, Jesus Christ, spill his blood. But if you look further down in your text, if you're following along with me, beginning in 18, we're going to skip around for just a second, our author tells us that this concept of shedding of blood which we read all about in the, in the book of Hebrews, how Christ had to shed his blood. Well, we learn that in one sense, this was nothing new because the shedding of blood was characteristic of the so-called first covenant too. Now we've encountered this language of first covenant elsewhere in Hebrews. You get that language here in verse 18. And when our author talks about the first covenant, well, he has in view the covenant that God entered into with Israel all the way back towards the beginning of the Bible, all the way back in the book of Exodus, which we sometimes call the covenant with Moses. Different names, but same covenant. First covenant, covenant with Moses, same deal. And in verses 19 through 22 of our passage, our author reflects on a few chapters in the book of Exodus that tell us about what happened when this covenant with Moses, this first covenant, was ratified or inaugurated. Now, to give some brief biblical theology, uh, we find that throughout the scriptures, God enters into a series of unified covenants with his people. It's a way of advancing his singular promises over time. Um, A covenant is a way of securing a special relationship with a people, and the Lord enters into a series of these covenants with his people in the Bible. Um, He enters into a special relationship with Abraham and his descendants all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. 
He enters into a covenant with Moses and the nation of Israel, and that's the one that our author reflects upon as he looks back a few thousand years from when he writes. And, and then there was a covenant that came later with King David and his sons. And with each of these covenant administrations, as we call them, there were formalizing events that accompanied the start of each of these covenants. And in verses 19 through 22 of our passage, our author is reflecting on the formalizing event of the first covenant of the Mosaic Covenant. Now, if we were to go back in the book of Exodus, we would find that the formalization of this covenant, when this Mosaic Covenant, the first covenant actually began, happened right at the start of Exodus 19. And now, as the story goes, some 50 days after God miraculously delivered his people out of slavery and captivity in Egypt, well, he gathered them to a certain place in the desert, a place we know as Mount Sinai. And through Moses, God had some really important things to say to Israel at Mount Sinai. First, he reminded them how he just saved them 50 days earlier out of Egypt, all by himself. When they were laboring in Egypt for 400 years in slavery, the Lord stepped in when they did nothing to deserve it and pulled them out of slavery and captivity without them contributing a single thing to their salvation. And then he called them as his people, as his treasured possession to be his own and to, to walk according to his law. And after the Lord issues these things, the people of Israel respond, this God seems pretty good to us. And so all that the Lord has spoken, we're going to do it. We're going to do it, they say in Exodus 19.8. Well, following this enactment of the so-called first covenant, Moses, what does he do? Well, he goes up on a mountain, Mount Sinai, and he meets with God one-on-one. -on -one. It's on Sinai that Moses receives the, the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, followed by a variety of other specific laws in Exodus 21 through 23. And then in Exodus 24, Moses descends down the mountain. He tells Israel all that God commanded for them. And then Israel responds once again with these ominous words. They say, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. But before the covenant was finally ratified, before it was finally stamped as the start of it, one more thing had to be done. The next morning, Moses wakes up early in the morning and he offers a number of sacrifices to the Lord. He builds an altar at the foot of Sinai. He offers oxen on it. He pours out animal blood on the altar. And then he sprinkles blood on God's people and on the book of the law that was just received. Now, this is the event that our author re reflects upon in our passage in Hebrews in verses 19 through 20. But it leaves us with the question, I think, why all the blood? Why was it necessary that this covenant ratifying ceremony be accompanied by so much blood? Well, the blood symbolized two really important things for God's people to understand. On the one thing, the blood symbolized the penalty for breaking the covenant. Understand, friends, that God is holy and that God requires those who bear his name, Israel, be holy too. And for God to be the perfect God of justice means that he can't just let law-breaking and unholiness slide under the rug. Otherwise, he just wouldn't be the God of perfect justice. After all, we would never consider a judge to be just in our own day if he gave a criminal a free pass. Now, we may quarrel from time to time over what might be a just sentence in any given situation, 
But if a judge failed to uphold the law at all in view of the clear guilt of a criminal, well, we probably wouldn't consider that person to be a just judge in the slightest. And so too with God. This is why God couldn't just ignore sin. His reputation depended upon it. Because perfect justice requires that infractions against an infinitely holy God be paid with life. And this is what all the shed blood so vividly demonstrated. It demonstrated that sin is no light matter, that sin is an infraction against an infinite holy God, and that sin requires that blood be shed. But on the other hand, just as blood pictured quite potently the penalty for breaking the covenant, well, it also foreshadowed, it looked forward to a provision, the provision that God would one day make for sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The blood that was spilled at the start of the covenant with Moses and throughout the long thousand-year run of the covenant of Moses may have been a stark reminder of judgment, but it also pointed to the means of our salvation as well. Understand that it wouldn't take long for Israel, after twice repeating that they would do everything that God commanded for them to break their end of the bargain. It's a pretty dramatic, drastic way, too. Um, they transgressed God's perfect law, and every one of them, as a result, deserved to die a sinner's death. But though they violated their end of the deal, and friends, though we violate our end of the bargain each and every day, too, God wouldn't violate his end of the deal. After all, he bound himself to his people by way of covenant, and in the fullness of time, he would send his son to be the perfect sacrifice to do what the bloody sacrifices under the Mosaic law could never do. That is, bring about true and lasting forgiveness to sinners like you and me. The provision for sin that, God, that God's people under the Mosaic Covenant desperately needed and the provision for sin, for our sin, that we desperately need to is found only in Jesus Christ our Lord who died in order that we might live. Christ shed his blood in order to inaugurate a better covenant, the, the new covenant, a covenant that was better than the first one. And in doing so, the sins of all of God's people, past, present, and future, have been completely 100% forgiven for all those who put their trust in Jesus Christ. But just as Christ spilled his blood so that God could forgive, well, so too we learn as we continue in our passage that he also spilled his blood so that he could give. Now, if you look at verses 16 through 17 in our passage, again, we're skipping back to the beginning again, our author gives us an other important perspective on Christ's death. Um, he relates Christ's death to that of a, a last will and testament. Now, many of you probably know uh, what a will is. I'm sure some of you probably even have wills as well. Um, but in a will, we bequeath property. Uh, and that property uh, that belongs to us, we bequeath to other people. Usually, it's other family members. Uh, we sometimes call those other family members or people who get some of our inheritance heirs. Uh, they are heirs to the estate, when what they will receive eventually one day is called an inheritance. But of course, we also know that heirs don't actually receive their inheritance, ordinarily, until the one who bequeaths them their inheritance dies. Well, this is the background in verses 16 through 17, when our author tells us that a will takes effect only at death. 
Only then is the inheritance actually released and distributed to the heirs. And when Jesus Christ spilled his blood for you and me, we who belong to Christ, we who, as the Apostle Paul tells us, are heirs according to promise, well, we receive an inheritance too. But that begs the question, what is this promised eternal inheritance that we receive as a result of Christ's shed blood and broken body? Well, there are various blessings that are part of this inheritance we receive. Um, one theologian, Charles Hodge, mentions things like justification, that is, being forgiven of our sins and being declared righteous in God's sight. It includes reconciliation with God, that is, being put in a right relationship with God once again. And it also includes a title to eternal life, the hope of eternal life that we look forward to after death. And we could also add to this list things like adoption, that is, becoming members of God's family as well. But above everything else, the chief blessing that binds all of these other blessings together is Jesus Christ himself. Because every other blessing bequeathed to us in the new covenant flows from the inheritance that is the person of Jesus Christ. Now, as a quick aside, I've been told that there are these certain vacation destinations around the world that are known as all-inclusives. Um, I've never been to one before, but I'm told there are these magical places, uh, typically in exotic or remote locations, where you pay one lump sum, and when you arrive, you don't have to pay for anything else. Sounds kind of magical to me. Um, all the food you could ever want is covered. Every activity or excursion you could ever want to do is covered. Um, transportation is covered, your room is covered. There's, there's nothing while you're there that you have to pay for, nothing that you have to go outside the all-inclusive to get. It's all, all at your fingertips, and you shouldn't have to procure a credit card at any point in your stay. Well, friends, this is how our inheritance in Christ works too. After all, the Apostle Peter tells us that his divine power has granted us all things, not just some things, not just most things, all things that pertain to life and godliness. And the Apostle Paul tells us that in Christ are hidden all the treasures, not some of the treasures, not most of the treasures, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Brothers and sisters, Christ Jesus, who we receive as covenant members of the new covenant, is the whole package. And when we identify with Christ through faith alone, he gives us everything that the God-sized hole in the human heart could ever want. He gives us meaning and purpose so that we don't need to frantically look for it in our vocations. He gives us the kind of belonging and security that we could never find even in our most intimate partners on earth. And he gives us forgiveness and rest from the toil and endlessly trying to make ourselves acceptable or worthy in his eyes or in the eyes of the world. Brothers and sisters, Christ had to die so that we could receive. And when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, well, that's exactly what happens, and boy, do we receive. The exhortation from this first point, then, in one sense, is quite simple. Put away your idols. Brothers and sisters, stop hedging all your bets by claiming Christ on the one hand, but then chasing after so many other lovers on the other hand. Look to the one who gives. Look to the one who gives lavishly. Look to the one who shed his blood to give and who gives without us having to do a single thing other than faith alone to receive it. Look to Jesus Christ, friends, and be satisfied in the God who gives. So Christ had to die so that we could receive. That's our first point. But as we continue in our passage, we hear of a second reason 
for why Christ had to spill his blood and die on a cross as well. That is, second, Christ had to die in order to represent us in heaven. Christ had to die in order to represent us in heaven. Now, there's a particularly powerful scene uh, that unfolds later in the Bible, uh, specifically in Revelation chapter 5, when the Apostle John, who's um, peering into the heavenly holy of holies, he sees the slain lamb, Jesus Christ, make his approach to the throne of God. Uh, to give a little bit of context, after weeping in heaven in despair that no one was found worthy in heaven to open this scroll and look into it, his eyes suddenly pivot when he sees the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, standing as a slain sacrifice. This lamb then makes his approach to the throne. He takes this scroll from the hand of God, and then all of the heavens erupt in a chorus of praise. Well, that event that John sees unfold in dramatic, symbolic fashion in heaven is the same event that our author now describes in verses 23 through 26 of our passage, albeit from a slightly different angle. Now, we've already heard in Hebrews that when Christ shed his blood, he ascended into the more perfect tent, that is, into heaven itself. Remember, our author has, has made the argument um, a number of times in Hebrews already that the tabernacle, this mobile tent of worship in the Mosaic Covenant, um, where all the Levitical priests ministered and offered sacrifices, it was great, but it was only a copy or a blueprint. As carefully constructed and as ornately, um, outwardly ornate as this thing called the tabernacle in the Old Covenant was, it was only ever supposed to be a replica of the genuine heavenly tabernacle made without hands. But even though the earthly tabernacle was a replica, well, it was still a serious matter under the covenant of Moses to draw near to God in it. If we were to go back to um, the, the Pentateuch, um, Exodus and Leviticus, we would see that the Levitical priests had to offer a lot of blood in this tabernacle. Day after day, year after year, they'd have to offer blood upon blood upon blood to cover the sins of God's people. Blood was sprinkled everywhere. Even the priest's clothes were sprinkled in blood. By one account, um, over the entire life of the sacrificial system, which would have been close to about a thousand years, over one million animals were eventually sacrificed. Now, that's a lot of blood. And again, all of this points to the fact that human sin is so serious that to draw near to God, even in a divinely instituted copy, because that's all the tabernacle was, required that all of that blood be spilled. And yet, as necessary as all that blood was to enter the copy, there's no chance in the world that it would have gotten you access into the real deal in heaven itself. This is why our author tells us that it was necessary. It had to happen that the heavenly things would be purified with better sacrifices than the blood of bulls and goats in the Old Covenant. So what was this better sacrifice? Well, of course, it was Jesus. It was Jesus himself who entered heaven after spilling his blood on the cross, not by virtue of, of the blood of bulls and goats, but by virtue of his own sinless, undefiled blood. 
Remember that scene that we just referenced a moment ago in Revelation 5, where the slain lamb made his approach to the throne of God? Well, because of the nature of the sacrifice that Christ offered as the sinless eternal one, he was able to go where no one else, even the most morally upstanding person you could think of, would ever dare to go. And yet remarkably, when Christ entered into heaven after paying the debt that we could never pay, we read in our passage that he didn't do this for his sake alone. Our author tells us that he entered into heaven itself, in verse 24, now to appear in the presence of God, that's literally before the face of God, and here's the important phrase, on our behalf, on our behalf. Understand that Christ didn't ascend into heaven in order to leave us in the rearview mirror. Christ didn't ascend to get away from us and all of the baggage that we bring to the table. Remember what Christ said in his parting words to his disciples in Matthew 28? Well, he said, I am with you always to the end of the age. By his spirit, friends, Christ is with us right now on earth. And in heaven, the resurrected and ascended Christ represents us. He advocates for us and he invites us to lay our many prayers at the foot of his throne. Now, there's a story from the Bible, which I think at this point is particularly instructive to, to illustrate all of this. Um, earlier in the Bible, in the life of Joseph, this can be found um, in the latter part of, of Genesis. Pastor Jacob just preached on some of this stuff in the last few months. Uh, we read a story about when Joseph had been unjustly imprisoned, that there was a glimmer of hope at one point during his time in prison when he met two fellow prisoners um, who were Pharaoh's chief cupbearer on the one hand and Pharaoh's chief baker on the other. Um, now these two people, uh, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, um, they were uh, one day serving in the courts of the king of Egypt, pretty high up, and then for whatever reason they were thrown in prison where they were now sharing a cell with Joseph. As the story goes, and, and many of you probably know the story, is that one evening these two prisoners dreamed a dream. And when they awoke from their dream, they were disturbed and they were confounded by the dream's symbolic nature. They had no idea what their dreams meant, but they suspected that they were probably pretty important. And so one thing leads to another, and in steps Joseph to interpret their dreams. First, he hears the chief cupbearer relay all the details of his dream, and then Joseph tells him the good news that what his dream looks forward to is something that'll happen. In three days' time, he will be released from prison, and all things will be back to normal for the chief cupbearer. Uh, in just three days, he'd be vindicated, he'd be released from prison, he'd get to go continue to work in the courts of the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, and all would be well for the good old chief cupbearer. But after interpreting his dream, Joseph has a request for the chief cupbearer. You might know what he says. He says this. He says, remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. The cupbearer is a well-connected man. Yeah, he has access, some of the closest access that you could get to somebody calling the shots in a kingdom. He's a chief cupbearer. He ministers in the courts of Pharaoh. And so Joseph asks that he would advocate on his behalf when in three days time he gets to go in and minister in Pharaoh's courts once again. But what happens? Well, the narrative ends on a dull note when we read that when the chief cupbearer was released, he quote, did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. There was no one to advocate for Joseph's innocence 
And as a result, he sat in the despair of prison for another two years. But in stark contrast to this, the good news of the gospel is that in our guilt, there is one who has not forgotten us. Brothers and sisters, rest assured that Christ has not forgotten any of his people. Jesus Christ tells us as much in John 6, 39, when he declares to his disciples, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Therefore, we need not be overwhelmed by anxiety when we see the church under duress, possibly concerned with whether or not Jesus, uh, Jesus' church could ever endure the various onslaughts from the world she faces. We, not, we need not fear whether the escalating pool of secularism and worldliness is somehow overpowering Christ's hold on his church. And as isolating as life can sometimes feel for some of you, know that you have not slipped the mind of your advocate. Christ has ascended by virtue of his own perfect blood, and from heaven he holds us fast and will by no means relinquish control of any of his saints, any of those who he has already claimed as his own. As we continue in our text, our author then roots this security of ours even deeper when he tells us that unlike the Levitical priests who entered the tabernacle repeatedly, they went in and out year after year with bloody sacrifices in tow, well, Christ, he doesn't need to enter heaven repeatedly. In fact, if this were the case, our author reasons, that would imply that Christ would have to suffer repeatedly since he'd be sacrificing himself over and over again too. Now, the Levitical priests, they had to offer sacrifices repeatedly, but for Christ, his blood was so effective that it was able to cover the sins of every Old Testament believer, every sin of every believer who has lived in the 2,000 years since his first advent, and every sin of every believer yet to be born until the second advent. And in heaven, our Lord Jesus sits enthroned. His work is done, and as a result, he claims us as his own. This is why he had to shed his blood so that we could enter, so that he could enter heaven and be our advocate in the heavenly places. And friends, that is what he does right now. But before we close out our study of this passage, we're, we're then given implicitly one more reason for why Christ had to die. Third, Christ had to die so that he could return. You know, later in the Bible, and this happens in Luke's gospel, uh, when a priest named Zechariah enters the temple one evening to offer incense, well, we learn that there was a crowd while he was ministering in the holy place in the temple. There was a crowd outside the temple praying. Uh, now, Luke doesn't tell us in that narrative what they prayed, and so we can't be certain. But Jewish tradition suggests that when a crowd of people gathered outside the temple, when the priest was inside, they prayed for God to accept the priest's offering. And in the process, they waited expectantly for the priest's return. And if the priest offered the right sacrifices according to the law, that's what would happen. His offering would be accepted, and then he would emerge out of the temple to the relief of the crowd of onlookers. In short, the return of the priest was what the people of God hoped for every single day as they waited outside the tabernacle and temple, prayerfully hoping that their sacrifice would be accepted. And likewise, the return of our great high priest, Jesus Christ, is what we anticipate too. And yet for us, 
understand that there's no apprehension or doubt connected with his return. After all, if Christ offered the perfect sacrifice, which the scriptures loudly proclaim that he has, then we can trust that it's inevitable. It's guaranteed that Christ will one day emerge from the heavenly holy of holies to the praise of his people too. Now earlier in our text, back in chapter 26, or back in verse 26 rather, our author told us that Christ shed his blood for our salvation, and then he used this phrase, at the end of the ages, at the end of the ages. Now that was 2,000 years ago, right, when Christ shed his blood, but according to the New Testament, the time between Christ's first advent and his second is a time that, that, that's ubiquitously referred to as the last days. According to the New Testament, we're actually living in the last days right now. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we know how many 24-hour days we have left until Christ comes again. That's not a call for us to try to wildly calculate when Christ is going to come again. But it does mean that there is no more redemptive work that has to happen again until Christ returns. In God's economy, the next best thing, the next big thing, rather, that we anticipate as the people of God, well, believe it or not, it's not the next election. It's not the college football national championship, especially because Nebraska is not going to be in it. And it's not so many of the things that we care so deeply about in this world. Now, of course, it's okay to care about those things. It's not bad to care about those things, but those just aren't the kind of things that should take the lead in shaping the most powerful affections that we have. These aren't the kind of things that, that should inform the most important decisions we make in the world. Only Christ, and specifically the hope of Christ's second advent, the hope of Christ's appearing a second time, should take pride of place in the life of the church in shaping how we walk in these last days. In summary, the promise that flows from the acceptance of Christ's perfect blood in heaven is that he is going to come again. And as we as his people are called, we as his people wait for that. Well, the New Testament calls us to wait expectantly for that day to arrive. Now, on the one hand, implicit in that promise is the urgent call for any of you who really don't know Christ Jesus right now, to identify him, identify with him by faith alone while there's still time. Now, our author already told us in verse 27 that you're going to die. You will die. You can't avoid it. And after you die, our author tells us, well, comes judgment. Comes judgment. Are you ready for that? If you're not, if you're not trusting in Christ right now, well, then the appeal would be to live expectantly right now by putting your trust in the only one who has done everything necessary to appease the wrath of God for his people. Don't trust in your knowledge to save you. Don't trust in your affluence to save you. Trust in Christ, who alone has the power to save all those he advocates for before the Father in heaven right now. But on the other hand, even if you, you really do identify with Christ by faith alone right now, ask yourself, how am I expectantly waiting for his return right now? Are you harboring grudges and bitterness against your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or are you learning to forgive one another by pursuing reconciliation as much as it depends on yourself? Are you letting sin fester in your lives and assuming that because no one has seen it in its full ugliness and no one has called you out on it, that it must not be a big deal? Or are you constantly learning to put to death that sin 
that belong to your former life. The great high priest, Jesus Christ, shed his blood for you and for me. He had to so that we could be saved. He had to so that he could ascend to heaven. And he had to so that he could come again. And that's what we eagerly anticipate on this side of glory. But are you ready for that day? But as we live on this side of glory, secured by his blood and yet eagerly awaiting his return, well, let me make this final appeal to us in closing. Church, learn to be a non-anxious presence in this world. Now, I'm sure I never lived under the Mosaic Covenant, so I can't guarantee, but I'm almost certain that it would have been a sight to behold to be an Israelite worshiper during the Old Covenant. To see the care that was taken in worship and everything from the construction of the place of worship to all the bells and smells that surrounded the worship ceremony, I can imagine that all of that would reinforce, would have reinforced the gravitas of worship. And it would have been hard to avoid that conclusion. And yet I can also imagine a certain level of anxiety accompanying that whole process too. After all, what happened? If one of the priests who was supposed to be representing you, what happened if he messed up one of the sacrifices he offered? Well, that happened in Leviticus chapter 10. And Nadab and Abihu were consumed by fire. The whole system, in other words, was marked by care, but there were also severe consequences too. And, and while care and consequences are no less present in the new covenant, we just don't need to worry in Jesus Christ whether or not our high priest will make a mistake. Because Jesus' blood was already offered. It was already accepted. We already have an advocate in heaven. We are already secure in him. And we already have the promise that one day Jesus Christ our Lord will emerge from the heavenly holy of holies to save those who are eagerly awaiting his return. And so as we live our lives until that day, understand that we have no reason to be overcome with paralyzing anxiety in the present. Now, to be sure, there's a lot to be anxious about in this world. There are global anxieties. There are individual anxieties. But while we could so easily lose ourselves down the endless rabbit trails of anxiety that are ubiquitous in our world, our passage reminds us that because the blood of Jesus Christ has been shed, we have been freed to be a non-anxious presence in this world. We've been freed from proving ourselves before God and others, and instead we take to heart Christ's advocacy for us in heaven and the identity he gives us on earth. We've been freed from anxiously caring so much about our reputation or our own comforts. In Christ, we've been freed to love and to look outside of ourselves and begin to serve as a people who have already had every single one of our most deeply felt spiritual needs already met in the perfect shed blood of Jesus Christ our Lord. And so whatever the paralyzing fears that may have taken root in your heart, maybe fears that you're bringing into the church with you this morning. Trust. Trust in the one who offered his blood on your behalf. Will in Jesus Christ hold you fast, and he will one day bring you and me and his church into our glorious home. Pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we come across these images of blood so often in the scriptures, and, and we confess that sometimes in our context, that imagery doesn't, doesn't sit quite well with us. And yet we pray that you would remind us as we continue to encounter that imagery, as we read your word, as we study your word, as we hear your word preached and read, that you would remind us through it of the seriousness of our sin, the fact that sin is no light matter, 
but also that you would remind us that we have an advocate. We have one in the heavenly places who's already paid for all of our sin by his precious blood, who holds us fast in heaven, and who will one day bring us home. Lord Jesus, I pray you would remind us of these great benefits that are ours in the new covenant, benefits that we have not earned, but benefits that we have received through faith alone in Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.